1: The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 31st, 2022. On this week's show, we're gonna talk about the Bengals and the Rams making it to the Super Bowl, the Chiefs and 49ers missing out, and Tom Brady maybe possibly retiring. We'll also discuss the Australian Open, where Rafael Nadal won his record-setting 21st Grand Slam title. And Grant Wall will join us to assess the U.S. men's national team's frigid loss to Canada and where they stand in World Cup qualification. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I am the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Joel Anderson is off again this week, which means there will be no gloating about TCU's basketball victory over LSU. And sadly for him, the statute of limitations expires today. Stefan Fatsis is here in D.C., and he's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside – And as a more elevated sports fan, he only roots for NFL playoff games to be boring and non-competitive, so he can win the argument that the 17-game season ruined football. Oh my God, you're not going to let that
2: go. You are not going to let that go. I am most happy that these games are being decided by field goals.
1: Also joining us this week, with no petty kind of disagreements or score settling that I know of, although we'll see, it's Louisa Thomas. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker, the author of three books, co-editor, of losers' dispatches from the other side of the scoreboard. I'm sorry to drop you in to just this this pit of, uh, of vipers, Louisa.
3: <laughs> My pettiness <laughs> runs deep, Josh. It's so petty you don't even know it.
1: <laughs> All right, I look forward to hearing it throughout the show. Late in the second quarter of Sunday's AFC Championship game, the Kansas City Chiefs and their quarterback Patrick Mahomes scored their third touchdown on their third possession to take a 21-3 to lead over the Cincinnati Bengals. At that point, it seemed impossible that the Chiefs wouldn't make their third straight Super Bowl. But then the Bengals scored a TD, the Chiefs get down to the one-yard line at the end of the first half, they go for it, they don't score. And then in the second half, it got worse for Kansas City. They got two first downs on their first five possessions to gag up the lead. And then down three with a ball at the Bengals' five-yard line and time running down. Mahomes got sacked twice. He fumbled on the second one. The Chiefs did recover and kick the tying field goal. But then it got worse for the Chiefs. They won the overtime coin toss, just like they did against Buffalo. But this time, Mahomes threw an interception. The Bengals' Evan McPherson, yay kickers, kicked the game-winning field goal. Stefan, we're going to talk about the Cincinnati offense. We're going to talk about Joe Burrow, the heroic brave, courageous, handsome LSU uh, quarterback. Oh, wait, he's on the Bengals now. Uh, We'll talk about all that in a minute. But what happened to Mahomes and the Chiefs' offense was almost spooky.
2: It was really weird. Uh, Let's start with the decision by Kansas City football team head coach Andy Reid to eschew the easy field goal at the end of the first half, which would have given them a 24-10 league. That was defensible in the moment. They're the KCFT after all. But Mahomes' execution on the play was poor. A sideways throw around the five-yard line. It was snuffed out by Eli Apple. And it set the stage for a truly uncharacteristic second half. Bill Barnwell noted on ESPN that the Bengals adjusted their coverages. But we've come to think of Mahomes as able to swat away any defensive adjustments because he and Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill are so good that it doesn't matter whether opponents are rushing three or four linemen or where they're positioning their linebackers and secondary. What did Mahomes have, like 50 yards passing in the second half? And those last two plays that you mentioned in regulation where they could have won the game, where he lost almost 20 yards running around in circles, missed an open Kelsey, fumbled, and was lucky that one of his offensive linemen was able to fall on the ball. Barnwell wrote, it felt like Mahomes was unsure of what he was seeing at times during the second half. I'm not sure if there's anything more than just that it's hard to be transcendent all the time, and other NFL players are also very good at what they do.
3: You know, there were times earlier in the season when everyone was sort of, you know, clutching their pearls and saying, what happened to Patrick Mahomes? Remember way back when, when he seemed like less than a a god? And then he reminded us exactly who he was and what a transcendent, as you said, quarterback he is. But I think that's right. I think that I have no idea what happened um, except to say that, you know, sometimes people have bad days or bad halves. And. It can be bewildering at sometimes, but it turns out he's human.
1: So the Buffalo Bills, who the Chiefs just made to look horrible and stupid, uh, to put a fine point on it, they are the number one defense in the NFL, uh, number one pass defense in the NFL. So the notion that um, there's some sort of adjustment that one can make to stop Mahomes and the Chiefs seems... A little bit silly um and yet it also feels like putting all of the agency on Mahomes is uh you know not fair to the Bengals because they did change things they dropped eight into coverage and that's why Mahomes had all of the time to run around and not find an open man towards the end but um you know they were double teaming Kelsey and Hill um and again usually like that means he'll find. Uh, Hardman or Pringle or, um, you know, McKinnon. And it just felt like when Mahomes was running around, not finding anyone, this is the downside of a quarterback who, when he freelances and freestyles, you say, nobody else in the league can do this. Nobody else in the league should do this. Nobody else in the league could get away with this, Stefan. Um, and in this case, like he, he makes it, he makes the game kind of harder for himself sometimes than it needs to be. Like as Barnwell was pointing out, like Travis Kelsey is kind of open. open just like immediately on the play where he ran back 20 yards and, and got sacked. Um, And so in the like five or 10% of games where he doesn't play well, he looks worse than like a, a standard issue quarterback having a, a bad game. He like looks better when he's having a good game and looks worse when he's having a bad yeah, game. Yeah. And in fairness in overtime – the interception did not really
2: feel like it was Mahomes' fault. That was an excellent play by the defenders. I mean, the, the, the he got right there at the last second to poke the ball out of the hands of the receiver, and it went right into the arms of a Bengals defender. So it's hard to blame Mahomes there, but certainly you had those two quarters of utter mm. <laughs> terribleness from Kansas City's offense. I mean, the worst half in any game posted by Mahomes ever in his career. And to have it happen then obviously magnifies the badness.
1: Let's talk about Joe Burrow, Louisa. He is in his second year, came to a team that had the number one draft pick, which by definition means it's bad. They were bad again last year and and Burrow uh, tore up his knee. And so coming into this season, uh, it was like, what, 150 to one or something that they make the Super Bowl? And that seemed generous. Um, they have a bad offensive line. Um, and so he's getting pressured a lot. Um, is there something about him? Like, I, I think there's a tendency when there, there's like kind of a new young hotshot quarterback to be like, it's the next Brady. He's like Joe Cool, just like Joe Montana. Like, do you. Do you sense like a certain kind of charisma coming off of him that like led his led his team to like overcome its historical badness or is it just like yeah this guy is like pretty good and they're they got good receivers and a good running back
3: well certainly the the myth-making machine has been hard at work lately cultivating the story that he likes to tell about himself i mean i am not sure i've ever seen such a young cocky quarterback let's say um there's more than a little, little, little bit of a I don't know bar stool to him, um, if that's fair to say. But um, yeah, I mean he's uh, he's got a lot of confidence. Let's say that. Um, and there have been lots of stories about he's changing the team's motto and changing the team's culture, and you know can do anything. And and you know he's still. You know, behind a bad offensive line, still, you know, facing a lot of pressure, he is a—he's really good, and he's, you know, showed more than once yesterday. So he's a kind of an escape artist too, and that's rare, you know, and it's rare to have the kind of poise um, and when your team is behind by that much and confidence. But um, yeah, I mean, it's always hard to say, you know, from the outside, how much how much does changing the team slogan from "Why not us" to "It is us" actually makes any difference. <laughs>
1: Bruce Feldman did a story for The Athletic that was like the collection of all of the like great moments for Burrow at LSU and like when he won over the team. So there was this one moment where the year before they won the national title, he threw a pick six against UCF and the bowl game and a defensive player just takes a cheap shot on him and, like, plants him into the turf. And, like, he's bleeding, and they're getting ready for the backup to come in. And he's like, no, I'm staying in. And he comes back out and just, like, immediately leads them to, like, all of these touchdown drives in a row. And I can imagine if I was his teammate, I would be like, all right, this guy is, like, pretty good and is, like, going to lead us to great places. And then there was, like, another story that's, like, during the off season when he came, he, like, stood up and gave a speech in the locker room. And everybody's like, That's our quarterback. It's like, can you imagine, Stefan, like how many like random dudes, random quarterbacks like stand up and give a speech in the locker room and then the team goes out and loses or like he loses the job. Like that stuff seems like ex post facto, right? Like the stuff on the field, you're like, all right, like that guy's uh, probably going to be a good quarterback, but like, All of the, like, off-field, changing the culture, changing the motto. I bet there's, like, I bet Sam Darnold did that a bunch. Mm -hmm. I bet he's changed the motto, like, you know, several times, too. Sam Darnold has to change the motto as frequently as possible (laughs) in hopes that something will stick. Um, I was actually thinking of Sam Darnold (laughs) with the Mahomes thing, too. He's, like, when, when Barnwell, Bill Barnwell wrote, like, that Mahomes didn't know what he was seeing out there. It was like the Sam Darnold seeing ghosts thing. Like that's, how, that's how bad Mahomes was. He like brought to mind the Sam Darnold seeing ghosts quote. Ghosts
2: uh, Josh, you know more about uh, Burrow than we do. I mean, what's charming about Burrow right now is that he's become sort of a character, right? Like everyone is dredging up his tweets from high school that are just silly and ridiculous. And it's almost as if he was, you know, and continues to try to create a persona that doesn't match his appearance. How much of that is genuine? I mean, is he just a goofball football player? Uh, and how much do you think is sort of deliberate, trying to just bask in the sort of nukle kind of character <laughs> that he seems to be uh, he seems to best represent?
1: Well, there was always this huge kind of mismatch between his perception of himself and his own abilities and the world's perception going back to high school when he wasn't like super highly recruited. Although he did get there's this like ridiculous, you know, notion to say like anybody who um isn't like anointed the world's greatest immediately is like everybody, nobody believed in him. He got a scholarship to Ohio State. I mean, that's like a pretty good football school, but then he gets there, doesn't win the starting job, transfers to LSU. Nobody thought of him as a, a high draft pick at that point, much less the number one pick. And so there is truth to the fact that he's like continually living up to his own belief about himself and proving other people wrong to a certain extent. But then like, you know, when they win the national championship, he's like smoking a cigar, a victory cigar in the in the locker room. And there is this, I think, very kind of conscious effort to cultivate not only like the quotes around like, yeah, I'm great. And I think I'm great. But also just like, Trying to create like iconic the aura. imagery, <laughs> yeah. the the aura exactly.
3: But he does seem to be having fun with it. I mean, that is what is endearing about it. I mean, that's that's what you hope at this point, you know, that you know he he's he's there's a degree of self awareness about how many diamonds are in his necklace and how many cigars he's smoking, and there is a kind of a self caricature going on, right? But at some point, he wins a Super Bowl, and then we're all in trouble.
1: <laughs> uh, and you know the success that they had this year was because in large part of the combination of Burrow and Jamar Chase, the college teammates. And in this game, uh, talking about a defensive plan, like the Chiefs doubled Chase all over the field and largely took him away. And just kind of like what Josh Allen did last week when, you know, the uh, the Chiefs took away Stephon Diggs. He threw four touchdown passes to Gabriel Davis, and so I guess we can't praise the Chiefs too much for their defensive acumen. But, like, Burrow took what the defense gives him. Apologies for the cliché. And like you said, Louisa, there were just a couple of moments where he escaped pressure, ran for first downs, and sort of defied expectations given what the the Bengals' line play is. And it'll be very interesting if we could transition into this uh, second game how Burrow and the Bengals deal with Aaron Donald and the Rams' defensive line. Like, that could get disgusting. Like, it, it could be a, a problem that even the, the diamond-wearing, cigar-smoking Joe Burrow is incapable of dealing with.
2: And yet we should be happy, I think, that it's the Rams making the Super Bowl uh, and not the 49ers. I mean, the 49ers felt—and Kyle Shanahan, obviously, the head coach— is created a team that plays this way, running more, very conservative, and kind of you had to because you don't have Joe Burrow at quarterback. You had Jimmy Garoppolo, who's demonstrated his inability to close things out and rally a team. Um, And in this case, you know, there was a point in the fourth quarter where Shanahan didn't go for it on fourth and two from the Rams 45, and then after the game defended it. And... I was glad to see the team that has Cooper Cup and a sort of rejuvenated Matt Stafford at quarterback and Odell Beckham Jr. demonstrating that that location does matter where you play in the NFL getting to a Super Bowl. I think this will be a much more entertaining game, um, though maybe it will be ugly, but I don't know. Burroughs seemed to escape a few dicey situations in, in, uh, against Kansas City.
3: It is true. If it were Cincinnati versus the 49ers, the Super Bowl would have a little bit of a feeling of, of an accident, you know, especially after the playoffs that we've gotten so far where, you know, you've seen really high level play and some, some drunken play too. But, um, you know, it, it does seem like the, the team that should have won somehow managed to win. <laughs>
1: And not only that, John. Even though the 49ers always beat the Rams. That's um, well fair. It's funny that you mentioned that this would be an accident because when we were growing up, Louisa, the Super Bowl was always the Bengals and the 49ers. I feel like <laughs> that there's a, there was a certain kind of inevitability was coming into play.
2: The Rams making the Super Bowl feels like an NFL team sort of getting away with Their plan, which is interesting, you know, they traded Jared Goff and two first-round picks for Matthew Stafford. They acquired Von Miller. They acquired Beckham and kept saying over and over, we're going for it right now. We're going for it right now. And it's kind of worked. Um, And in an NFL where that's, you know, designed for parity, obviously, the Bengals having gone like 625 and won the previous two seasons are now in the Super Bowl. Um, This is an example of like, Planning and being able to change course quickly happens, which is feels kind of kind of interesting to me.
3: It also feels there's something sort of like grand NFL plan about it. You know, you have the billion dollar stadium where the Super Bowl is going to be hosted. You have a kind of star quarterback who had never actually proven that he should be considered a star quarterback, but was somehow sort of yeah rejuvenated. Is probably a good word, but you have these kind of recognizable names who sort of were called <laughs> called into this, like, brand-new idea of an L.A. team, um, which it's sort of been so far more like an idea than than something real. And now we're at the Super Bowl, you know, it's something, yeah, I think that I think that's actually a, a kind of interesting point. Like, there is something, they're getting away with something. And there <laughs> the really NFL isn't is even getting a away base, with something.
2: I mean, yeah, exactly. This
1: feels very Potemkin Village Super Bowl team. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something maybe less risky about what the Rams did than it kind of sounds like initially. Like, they got rid of, like, a bunch of first-round picks. Did you mention Jalen Ramsey, too? They traded a bunch of of picks for him. But they had a bunch of late-round picks, and so and the NFL, like, volume in the draft is often more important than getting guys at the very top, although maybe Joe Burrow shows that, that that can be incorrect in some circumstances. But the combination of like getting a bunch of star quality guys and then kind of loading up on people that you need to fill out a big NFL roster like that, there's a certain um in- intelligence at work there. But if you have a top heavy roster, you just need health. And uh, Matt Stafford, Cooper Cup, Odell Beckham, Aaron Donald. Von Miller, Jalen Ramsey, they were all on the field. And like, how many times in an NFL season do you, would you have seen like two or three or four of those guys not be able to play or be compromised? And so I think they got lucky with health, like their bet paid off. But I, I found it interesting that you were kind of anti-49er because, all right, the case against the Rams is they built this like kind of ridiculous stadium that cost way too much money they don't actually have fans they got like outrooted by the 49ers and you think that it's like better to root for a team because their quarterback is good like the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo is not a good quarterback by NFL Sanders made I thought the 49ers more fascinating to watch actually yeah. like what they did with Debo Samuel and putting him at running back like there's no player and and Uh, I think that I'm speaking for Joel here as well, just guessing. There's no player that was more fun to watch during these playoffs than Debo Samuel, like the the kind of strength and power that he runs with along with the shiftiness like he showed on that screen pass that he scored on. And so the way that they were able to patch it together, D'Amico Ryan's the young defensive coordinator, like putting together that defense. And I think Shanahan, for all that he was like too conservative on that punt call. Like, the way that he was able to kind of get that team building towards what seemed like the Super Bowl when they were up by 10 points was, like, a, great, a really good coaching job. And so, go 49ers, boo Rams.
3: I just want to clarify
2: that I didn't think that the Rams are worth rooting for over the 49ers.
3: Yeah, I didn't say that either. <laughs> I
2: said it would just be a better football game. I would rather <laughs> yeah. watch Cooper Cup and everybody else as opposed to just Debo Samuel. But, yeah, necessity is a mother of invention. So, credit to Shanahan for for piecing that team together. Their running backs were injured one after another during the regular season. And to come up with that creativity on the fly uh, as the season progressed is a credit to them. Um, Let's finish up with some Tom Brady talk. ESPN, and really only ESPN, is definitively reporting that Brady is retiring after 22 seasons. Um, And they were going all in on this, Louisa. I mean, everybody else is hedging it quoting Brady's agent saying that only Tom will announce when he's retiring. The AP reported that Brady has told the Buccaneers that he hasn't made up his mind yet. So I found all this kind of perplexing, the sort of the degree to which ESPN is all in.
3: I found it kind of hilarious, to be honest, because I mean, it was like we we're, you know, living in two different sports universes. You go to ESPN and there was the open letter thanking Tom Brady. I mean, it was just like a whole package and the, you know, the story stayed at the top of their sort of news, newsreel all day and all weekend. And as it would if Tom Brady had announced that he was retiring. The tricky thing is that Tom Brady did not na- announce that he was retiring. You know, it was a very sources say story and even the kind of backtracking, you know, that ESPN reported that his clothing line had had seemed to post a tweet confirming and then erased it. And, you know, other outlets were reporting that Tom Brady had called the Bucks and said, I haven't made a decision yet. Um, it does seem like he is probably going to retire at the same time there was No admission that there was any kind of pushback. And and not just around the story, but the whole packaging of it. I mean, it was this kind of weird, you know, um, celebration of Tom Brady's life and career uh, on the one hand over here and everyone else being like, speculation rising, you know, it was sort of a weird... I don't know squibbing. I, it was it was a weird. It was just a weird weekend. I, I was into it actually because <laughs> it was much more interesting to me than a sort of like straightforward Tom Brady retires story. But um, but yeah, it was definitely like pretty amazed at ESPN's just refusal not to spin even the uh, didn't you know semi denials, s- soft denials into soft confirmation of their story.
1: <laughs> I am uh, pro. ESPN here because they're like in this business relationship with Tom Brady, right? Like there's that ESPN plus man in the arena mm-hmm. series that Tom Brady, I think actually has final cut on. I like think he's, he's self-producing. The producing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they're, they're business partners there. And a lot of the time with like, you know, everybody's like, whoa, great job. Whoa, getting that or great job, Adam Schefter. And what they're doing is like reporting on things that we would know in three minutes, like if they didn't report them. A lot of that stuff just seems pointless. But in this case, it's the very rare, like, announcement like this that they, it's a legitimate scoop. And Brady's denial, it's not even a denial. Like, and as you said, the TB12 sports account sent a tweet that uh, confirmed the decision. And so good on ESPN for not pretending to go along with this idea that Tom Brady isn't retiring. It does lead to, like, an interesting epistemological question of, like, what is a retirement? Like, if Brady hasn't announced his retirement, even though they know that he's retiring, again, like, that just seems ridiculous and, like, hair-splitting. And so the thing that I found the most interesting, actually, was the AP going with its own report Saying that he hasn't made up his mind. You would think that it would be ESPN that would be more like playing along right. and doing the kind of access y. Or the thing, New York Times.
3: The, New York Times also being like speculation mounting, I think was the headline, you know, after the ESPN report. It was not, you know, reports are that ESPN,
1: you know. I mean, the final chapter here could be Brady actually deciding not to retire just to spite. <laughs> that was <really> my question.
2: <laughs> like, is it, is it above Tom Brady to say, eh, I could play another year? All right, now I will. Why not? I would
3: I've gotta say like much respect if he does.
1: <laughs> Up next, Raphael Nadal and the Australian Open. Terms apply. Late on Sunday night in Melbourne, Australia, Rafael Nadal looked more down and out than even the Cincinnati Bengals did in the first half against Kansas City. He was down two sets to none against Daniil Medvedev, a point away from going down a break in the third set. But Nadal climbed out of that game and the third set and the fourth set and then the fifth set. He came back for a 2-6, 6-7, 6-4, 6-4, 7-5 victory and more than five hours. He won his 21st Grand Slam title, the most of all time in men's singles, won more than either Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic. Louisa, this was not the most dominant performance of Nadal's career, but for me, it was maybe the best example of why he's great. He was coming off a long-term foot injury. He hadn't played for months before an Australian warm-up tournament, which he won, incidentally. He's also playing against the best hardcourt player in the world, vaccinated male division. And for many hours, he looked like the second best player on the court. And yet somehow he fought, he changed tactics, and he was holding the trophy at the end. And I should say that I DVR'd the match. I set it for six hours. And when I turned on my TV at 9.30 Eastern time, I saw the first thing I saw was Medvedev holding the little plate <laughs> oh, and talking. No. And then... <laughs> And then when I I spent the next however many hours you know I fast forwarded so it didn't take that long I was just like did some <laughs> did they give the winner the small plate this time I was uh, just like trying it it did ruin some of the dis- suspense but there was a lot of suspense and wondering like wait how did he turn this around how did he do my
2: it? DVR just to stick on the DVR theme ran out at four three in the fifth set. I managed to watch the end on uh, ESPN Plus's Spanish uh, feed. And this
3: wasn't <laughs> even the longest Australian Open final that Nadal has played, <laughs> which is a pretty unbelievable uh, record. Um, I mean, I think you could see how much this meant to him. I mean, I think he, in some ways, maybe even confirmed his greatness to himself. Not that, you know... <laughs> We need that. But um, you could see how much it meant to him. Even after he won the semifinal um, against Matteo Berrettini, he was emotional in a way that you don't normally see him at that stage. Um, He has been very open about what a difficult um, month this has been. He called it the most emotional month of his life before the tournament. He um, gave an interview to... Um, ben Rothenberg for the New York Times about how he was very close to retiring. He had a very difficult bout with COVID. He had um foot pain that really seemed to not entirely go away. You could see it in this tournament affecting him as as matches went on. And um, I have to say this match went exactly the opposite <laughs> way that I expected it to. Um, you would sort of assume that the 35-year-old um, great would come out, you know, Guns blazing, and that he would fade, um, which is his has been what's happened. Um, he got heat stroke earlier in the tournament, but actually he he looked completely lost for two and a third sets. And the the exciting thing was watching him figure out Medvedev's game and exploit Medvedev's you know weaker volleys and and kind of will himself into a, s- a situation where he he could win. I mean he has not come back from two sets down, you know, in more than a decade. <laughs> it's just a am- it's incredible.
1: Stefan, when we think of Nadal, we think of grinding long rallies. And in the first part of this match, the grinding long rallies were pretty much all going Medvedev's way. Like, um, they played an amazing match at the, at the U.S. Open. Um, and it's just a great stylistic kind of scenario when they, when they play each other, because Medvedev is the guy who is not going to be troubled by, um, you know, Nadal from the baseline. He could do that all day, although he was cramping a little mm-hmm. bit towards the end. But so what Nadal did was, you know, he did use a lot of drop shots and draw Medvedev in. But he just started going for it, like towards the end of the match and was like, all right, I'm not going to be like grindy Nadal. I'm just going to like blast the ball. And that's kind of when it turned around. And it wasn't like he should have necessarily been doing that from the beginning. It made sense for him to play the way he did. And he took on more risk by hitting the ball harder and trying to play these shorter rallies. And he executed. So kind of a risky strategy, but he nailed it.
2: He had nothing to lose. Is there a little bit of that? I mean he recognized I'm down two sets. I mean he was down, you know, like you said, he was on the verge of of being in an truly insurmountable position in the third set. Um, He told Eurosport after he was broken when serving for the match at 5-4-30-love, I thought, fuck, am I going to lose like in 2012 and 2017? But I just kept fighting. I can lose, he can win, but I can't give up. Um, And it felt to me like he probably said the same thing to himself in the third set. Like, Like, I should just go for this. I mean, it was all so improbable. Josh, you and I saw him in Washington last summer in late August, early September, and it was like a miracle he was there, according to him and to everything that was being written about him. That was not that long ago. I mean, it really is a remarkable recovery with very little tournament play in between and then to just sort of cruise through the early parts of the Australian Open, survive five sets against a young player, Denis Shapovalov in the quarterfinals, and then four sets in the semifinals against Berrettini, and then this crazy comeback in, in the finals. I mean, what a human, what an athlete!
3: I will say that his more aggressive um, game style is something that he'd been showing throughout the tournament and his success. He had been sort of playing off the front foot in a way that he, we don't normally associate with Nadal. But, you know, he, as he mentioned himself and as Stefan mentioned, like he has not played a lot of matches. His conditioning is not where it normally is. So he knew that he couldn't go into these long grind out matches again and again and again. And yet he, he knew he couldn't. He still did, <laughs> he somehow managed to win. I mean, I think if you'd asked Nadal um whether or not he could have won a match like this before before the match, he probably, like everybody else, would have said no, and yet the kind of gift that he has is that he could do it
1: anyway let's talk about Medvedev, who was just Medvedeving all over the place and in all uh sorts of ways um Let's maybe start with the semifinals in his match against uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, where he very loudly accused uh, his opponent of being coached by his father. Let's listen to that.
4: And his father can talk every point. No, are you stupid? His father can talk every point. His father can talk every point. His father can talk
1: every point. Luisa, not unusual for uh, Medvedev to uh, be voluble let's say. What did you make of his <laughs> kind of on-court and off-court commentary and behavior during this tournament?
3: Um, well, we've seen it all before, as you say. You know, his long history of uh, absolutely losing his mind during tennis matches and saying um, regrettable things um, and then going uh, to a press conference and more or less apologizing for his um, intemperance. He was asked uh, again, if he, if he ever regretted these outbursts and he says all the time, you know, he, he does, he has a kind of impulse control problem on the court, you know, in the heat of battle. And then, and it's sort of hard to know what to make of it because it is really, it can get really ugly. I mean, it, it, at times it's gotten, you know, he's, you know, made a, racist comment you know early in his career he's thrown coins at an umpire i mean he's done some really kind of awful things in the past and you sort of think like oh he's he's kind of growing up and maturing but maybe not but um he called the umpire a small cat we all know what he was avoiding saying um in this tournament um you know at the same time by his own admission it gets him going you know he he sort of is able to channel his Trollishness into a kind of effective trollish tennis, you know, that is very disruptive to his opponent, and uh, and it works. Um, so it, it it can be hard to sort of know how to sort
2: all that out. Well, he feeds on two things, it seems: one, the idea that he's being wronged, and two, the antipathy of fans. Um, you know, he had beef with Tsitsipas going back several years in 2018 when he was upset about Tsitsipas taking a long toilet break in the middle of a match. After the match, he said, man, you better shut your fuck up, okay? Iconic. Um, Which is a lovely line, of course. Um, And then the fan stuff, we sort of became a public phenomenon at the U.S. Open a few years ago. And we saw that again here in Australia in the final. Clearly, and Medvedev, of course, knew that this would be the case— The fans were overwhelmingly supportive of Nadal. They wanted to see Nadal win a 21st. Nadal is beloved. Medvedev was pissed that the umpire didn't control fans who were cheering when he double-faulted, who were making noise between serves, who were booing his unforced errors? I mean, sorry, cheering his unforced errors.
1: They're idiots. You can't say please with idiots. Please doesn't work with idiots.
2: I mean, the, the I mean, it's a great piece of of dialogue. The 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 back and forth between the umpire and uh, and 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 Medvedev. There, can I read the entire thing of what he said? Please. Can you take control? Please. Small please is not enough. Can you step it up? Can you step up? Say it every time. If you have to say it 25 times, say it every time they do it. After the point, say it every time. Step up. It's the final of the match. Step up. Please is not enough. They're idiots. With idiots, please doesn't work. Did he have a point, Louisa?
3: Uh, Yes. (laughs) I mean, yes and no. Um, I don't think you should ever berate um, an umpire um, or any official. At the same time, you know, in tennis code you're not supposed to call out between points the crowd was behaving terribly um tennis is not like other sports you know in other sports we are used to you know the screaming crowd. i mean the, the crowd trying to really become part of the game and help their help their side tennis decorum is not like that um at the same time the whole circumstance is different um it really really is disruptive to have someone call out in between your serves and um it's also the case, you know, I I did feel a little bit sorry for him. Afterwards, he talked about his his dream dying, and it, it all sounded kind of like it was this long rambling, you know, autobiographical, you know, um sad like little speech he gave about about how, you know, when you're a kid you you dream about the crowd cheering and now his, you know, he's gonna go play tournaments in Moscow instead of playing Wimbledon or whatever, because you know, he he knows who cares. Um, But at the same time, it, it's true. You know, other sports have home games, you know. They might go on the field and they might have to face, you know, terrible vitriol from the fans, from, you know, 60,000 people or whatever. But then they get to come home. You know, Mevedev doesn't really ever get to come home. and And that's sad because I – it's true. That's what kids are dreaming about. They're dreaming about the fans cheering for them. And it's got to be hard when they are definitely not. You know, and Djokovic is someone who has struggled about with this. We saw how much it meant to him when the fans started cheering for him at the U.S. Open, even though he lost. Um, you know, there's some people who never, I mean, Roger Federer never face, faces a hostile crowd. But, but by and large, you know, Medvedev always does a little bit like Djokovic. And, and it, it definitely got to him.
1: Yeah, I hearing that press conference, it sounded a little bit like a villain origin story. I mean, he's sounding very much like Djokovic and complaining that the fans never cheer for him and he doesn't get his due. Um, And so you can feel maybe like a tiny bit bad for him, but also it's just like, that's how it works. You're playing against Rafael Nadal, who's going for his record-setting Grand Slam title. You have one Grand Slam, you're a good player, but like he's been playing almost two decades like just understand that that's the way the world works and deal with it and the thing that's so it. funny that yeah but the but also the thing is he plays well when he's when he's angry and when the crowd is against him and so you would think that there would be some sort of understanding or recognition that this is actually not harming his like career and his performance and that also the reason that we know him and talk about him is because he has one of these personalities that I think transcends the, the sport and is a little bit more colorful and interesting. And you don't oftentimes you're like, Oh, he's human. There's that doesn't mean that he's like that, that his humanity is often like the best slice of humanity, but it, it there is something fascinating about him as a person and there are. Even with all of the bad stuff that you listed, Louisa, there are moments where you do kind of root for the guy because he is such a good player and he plays in this just really charismatic and kind of non standard way. And he's just funny and weird. And so I should say I I'm
3: think, often rooting for him. Yeah. I mean, it's I not totally sometimes rooting root for, for him. him. I'm totally rooting for him. I mean, I, I mean, I, you can't root for Rafael Nadal, you know being Rafael Nadal and the fifth set of Australian Open or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, but, but yeah, I think that Medvedev is absolutely a, um, a great addition to, to tennis. A few, you know, of the more extreme, you know, examples. And, aside. I, and I think unlike um,
1: Djokovic, I could actually foresee a scenario where he does become a crowd favorite. Well, he kind of already some has
2: in New York, right? Didn't his sort yeah. of anti-hero antics initially Turn into the New York crowd adopting him because of the way he behaved. Um, I think he. Was disappointed that he lost this match and he was hurt that the crowd was so rudely against him. Um, His faces during the awards (laughs) ceremony were hilarious. At one point, he apparently mouthed boring when the head of (laughs) Tennis Australia was talking. But then when he took the microphone, he was absolutely charming. Um, Oh, yeah. He said, tough to talk after five hours 30 and losing. Funny. He said, my wife isn't here. Probably the TV is broken. And now, funny, uh, my parents and sisters, I love you all if you are still watching. funny, he is a charming and entertaining and interesting guy, and Josh, you love him, of course, because all you tall people stick together,
3: and also, as I've referenced before, he has some self awareness like he gets about back- you know he gets back to the you know press conferences and and he apologizes, he's not someone who's like. Can be a little bit clueless about how it plays or how it seems, or you know, he he obviously gets carried away, and it obviously does help him. And so maybe it's never going to end. Maybe it shouldn't, you know, if, if he's cares about winning tennis matches. But um, yeah, I mean, I think he's a I I think he's a fascinating, complicated guy. I mean, I think it's he's very appealing in a lot of ways. Um, and he has a really kind of weird appealing game. I mean, it's like it's very much like Djokovic in a lot of respects, in the sense that he can just outgrind anyone from the baseline and he can hit shots from contorted positions and he is a big serve and he's got areas he can work on but he's an amazing weird backhand I mean it, there's a lot kind of weird unusual stuff going on in his game which is unlike anyone else and that's appealing too I mean it's like Djokovic only with like a big dash of weirdness and and you know I, I'm I'm here for it <laughs>
1: All right, we're going to cover Ash Barty and Daniel Collins and the women's final of the Australian Open in our Slate Plus segment. And you will be back for that, Louisa. Thank you very much for all of the Medvedev talk and the Chiefs talk and the Joe Burrow psychoanalysis. And we'll uh, be hearing more from you in a bit. Thanks. Thank you. Up next, Grant Wall on the U.S. men's national soccer team's loss to Canada. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to be joined by Louisa Thomas to continue our Australian Open chat. We're going to talk about the women's final between the lovable Ash Barty and the also lovable American Danielle Collins. Tira's talk about Ash and Danielle and the Aussie Open, you need to be a Slate Plus member. That membership will get you extra hang-up segments and you can listen to all Slate podcasts without ads and get unlimited reading on the Slate website. It's only a dollar for the first month. And you can sign up at slate.com slash hang plus. That's slate.com slash hang plus.
2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America
3: NA member FDIC.
2: On Sunday in Hamilton, Ontario, the U.S. men's national soccer team did something it hadn't done since 1980. It lost to Canada in World Cup qualifying. The 2 0 result wasn't entirely surprising. Through 10 of 14 games, In the competition among eight teams for three automatic spots in Qatar later this year, Canada is unbeaten and atop the table. The U.S. still sits second, but sphincters are beginning to tighten. Joining us now from a hotel in Burlington, Canada, is our friend Grant Wall. He's the proprietor of Football with Grant Wall, to which you can subscribe at grantwall.com. Hey, Grant. Hey, how are you? Welcome back. Uh, We'll get to the Americans performance. In this game and last week's uninspiring one nothing win over El Salvador. But first, let's give Canada its due. You wrote after the game that Canada is the best story on the planet in World Cup qualifying. Historically, Canada has sucked. They've only made one World Cup in 1986. Even this time around, they had to play in a first round of qualifying against the Cayman Islands, Bermuda, Aruba, Suriname, and Haiti. How has this happened?
4: You know it's pretty incredible Canada's men's rise. Their women's team is is terrific and has been for a while. They're the Olympic champions, but the the men's team has had talent individually over the years occasionally, but they've always been sort of as a national team less than the sum of their parts and now the talent's on a completely different level with Canada's men's team. You've got the best player in CONCACAF, Alfonso Davies, star for Bayern Munich who actually wasn't available for this U.S. game. They beat the U.S. without him. Um, But there's other great players, too. Jonathan David, who actually was born in New York City, uh, Canadian citizen, forward, uh, worth about $50 million on the transfer market with Lille, Uh, And in other players, Kyle Lahren scored the first goal against the U.S. yesterday. So the talent production has gone up, especially from the Toronto area and the Brampton part of the city. And these are players who are playing in Europe. They're playing in MLS. And they've got a tremendous amount of confidence. It's truly incredible when you think about Canada's been terrible for, for a long time. They've only made one World Cup in 1986. And here they are undefeated after 10 games. They played the US and Mexico, the traditional regional powers four times, no losses, two wins. And so I think it's fair to say at this point, there's enough of a sample size that Canada's the best team in, in CONCACAF.
1: There's gotta be something to the fact that Canada has a very clear plan. Like they knew what they were doing. And there's always, you know, reading your newsletter or reading anything else, there's just so much debate around, you know, going into these windows. Even at, at this point in the qualification cycle, it's just like the U.S. seems like they have almost too many options sometimes. And, you know, you wrote about um, at the number nine position, sometimes just all the options are bad, but sometimes there's a lot of good options. And um, But there was just a kind of clarity of thought and plan for Canada, especially when they took that early lead. And it was almost sort of sad after the game where Greg burhalter is talking about how dominant the us was it's like <laughs> that's like not what the us should be talking about at this stage in its soccer history like you got to win the game and canada won the game and they won it they won it the way that they they wanted to win it they knew what they were doing and they executed
4: yeah i mean canada's coach john herdman gets a lot of credit for being this charismatic figure but he's also just a good tactician because canada has played their their qualifying games in different ways depending on the location depending on the opponent And their identity for this game against the U.S. was very clear, as you say, especially because Canada gets the early goal in the seventh minute. They were perfectly happy to let the U.S. possess the ball. The U.S. had 64 percent of possession. That's what Berhalter was referring to in his very rose-colored postgame comments because – Possession is not the same thing as dominance, and, and I think we need to have a discussion here about what it means to dominate the game because it's not like the U.S. produced many great goal-scoring chances. There was really only one late in the first half. Weston McKenney had a header that was well-saved by the sweatpants-wearing goalkeeper Milan Borean for Canada, but that was the only great chance for the U.S. So to me, you can't dominate a game if you only create one great chance. You can hold the ball 35 out, yards out from goal without doing much and, and honestly that's a lot of what the US did
2: and one of the reasons that we're talking about the lack of scoring production is because they're not scoring your post game piece is about the lack of a number 9 a striker no one is emerging here in the last two games uh, Greg Berhalter started two MLS players who haven't played competitively in three months. He has left at home in Europe um, players like Josh Sargent, Daryl DK, Jordan Pifak. Um, Jordan Morris is back on the national team and getting minutes for some reason. Again, not to harp on burhalter but why not? Because this is what you do in a soccer country. You know, he said after the game that, you know, he started – Jesus Ferreira and Jossie Zardes in the last two qualifiers because he's thinking about game plan specifics, and even though they're not in season form, they get to play. It's all very confusing to me. I mean, the U.S. has had no answers. They have no goals in three qualifiers, one goal in three more, two goals in the last three games, two first half goals total in the 10 games so far. Why is this so difficult and why do you think that this revolving door of strikers in these games is happening as opposed to Berhalter trying to settle on someone?
4: I'm really surprised that Ricardo Pepe, even though he's just 19, is not playing more minutes in these first two games of the window because, like you said, the guys who are starting in front of him are two MLS players, Zardes and Ferreira, who didn't even make the playoffs, by the way, at MLS. So they haven't played a game competitively at club level since early November. And so why would you choose those guys over Pepe, who is currently playing games in the Bundesliga? Maybe not as well as he'd like to, but he's getting playing time for Augsburg in Germany. And so for Pepe to only get 21 minutes in the first two games is is baffling to me. Now, it's not just about the center forward position, when it comes to the lack of goal production. And the US is only averaging 1.3 goals a game over these 10 games. That's the second lowest in the seven World Cup cycles of qualifying going back to 1998. So pretty poor goal production and the chances aren't being created enough. you know. And that's also on the you know poor crossing, on not taking advantage of transition opportunities. Christian Pulisic is in a funk right now and He needs to have a big game on Wednesday night. The opportunity is certainly there against Honduras because Honduras hasn't won a game in 10 in World Cup qualifying, and they're already eliminated. But this suddenly becomes a really important game for the U.S. to get three points if they want to feel pretty good about qualifying for Qatar.
1: So on your podcast grant that you do with um, Landon Donovan and Chris Winningham, Landon talked about how it didn't look like Pulisic was having fun in the game against El Salvador. And Landon's a guy who talks about his emotions and his feelings. He talked about them during his career a lot. And so had some really interesting insights about Pulisic, kind of maybe for the first time opening up uh, about how difficult it's been for him at Chelsea and having the pressure on him um, playing for the U.S. And I think I'm sort of caught in between here because it's clear that he's not Playing well it's it seems even clear to me to say that he's trying to do too much like just dribbling into trouble and um, that there's just something off there but this idea that you could see in his face that he's not enjoying it well why would anybody on this team be enjoying it? right now um and and Pulisic often like even when he's successful he's often getting fouled a lot and so there's moments in games where they're doing really well where he's like looking angry at the refs and at the opposing team and so it it feels to me like yeah for him to look like he's enjoying it he'd need to score a goal or the team would need to be scoring goals I don't know about reading too much into his psychology like he's not having fun and that's the reason why the team isn't doing well.
4: Yeah, I tend to stay away myself from reading too much into body language and, and things like that. Though I, I do think Landon's comments were insightful, and we have seen Christian Pulisic, even uh, earlier in the pandemic, come out and say, look, I, I have seen a therapist during the pandemic to, uh, to help me deal with some things. And I think it's great that he's speaking publicly about mental health. Uh, Donovan was one of the first athletes, I think, to, to do that uh, very often. But um, you look at Polisic right now, and clearly what's happening at Chelsea doesn't have him in a, in a great frame of mind. And what he's required to do or what he thinks he's required to do with the U.S. team is very different from what he does for Chelsea. And that's what leads, I think, to trying to play hero ball and to try and, and dribble uh, through the defense and, and not pass necessarily when he should and you know I, I think he's putting himself under a tremendous amount of pressure right now that might be bigger than anything coming pressure wise from the outside so you know for, for Polisic he's certainly capable of these wonderful goal scoring moments for club and country by the way that goal that he scored against Mexico in November, just a terrific instinctual play to to get in front of the goal and finish and beat his man to the cross. And a good cross. And the goal he the scored way. <laughs> a good cross. The the only one we've seen for a while now, uh, with the US. And then Polisic scored a terrific goal against Liverpool for Chelsea not that long mm-hmm. ago. So he's certainly capable of doing this stuff. And yet he's not doing it very often. And and for the US at least, Basically, he's just dribbling into losing the ball more often than anything right now.
2: And his service has been poor. Um, Paul Tenorio has a piece up at The Athletic after the Canada game that talks about the difference in in appearance. And this ties into Pulisic and other players as well. Canada looks like they are having fun. They are loose. They are successful. They have an idea of what they're doing. The U.S. feels yeah, like they're winning every watching game. Watching Stephen. <laughs> w- I know. But, but, you know, it's not like the U.S. is losing every game either. They're in second in the group. They have won five out of the 10 and tied three. more. Answer me this. Did they um, look like
1: they were having fun when they beat Mexico?
2: <laughs> they did. They did look like they were having fun, but that feels like it was a while ago now. And that's how that's how this works in World Cup qualifying. It is game to game. Um, So I, I don't want to overdo it, but is there some sort of weight of expectation here that, you know, A, they feel like they should be dominating the group of eight, and B, now that they're not— and Berhalter is really moving pieces around and not settling on a consistent group up front anyway and in the back a little bit, um, is that part of the sort of bigger problem?
4: You know, I think...
2: Are the, they pressing?
4: Yeah, th- these are young U.S. players, right? It, yeah. You know, early 20s, late teens in a couple of situations. A lot of them are playing for truly big-name European clubs, Chelsea, Juventus, you know, Leipzig uh Dortmund, you know, a, a bunch of of terrific clubs. And often, as invariably happens, the US leaves the field at halftime and they haven't scored a goal. And they have sort of this look on their face like, I can't believe we haven't scored against these guys. And that's a pretty regular Occurrence, So I think they're buying into this a little bit of like, here's where we play on paper. We should be doing better as a national team. And I think that's frustrating for them. Um, and that's happening against teams like El Salvador, where it was scoreless going into the half the other night at home. So I, I, I do think this U.S. team really needs to have a game where it wins like five nil. And actually, theoretically, that's possible on Wednesday night, as long as it's not so frigid in St. Paul, Minnesota, that, you know, that just shuts down the game.
1: Yeah, so they're playing in the Arctic Circle on Wednesday uh, <laughs> in an igloo in Minnesota. No offense, Minnesota. But um, this is it, it feels like these games come up, like, once every one of these three-game cycles. It's like, they've got to win this game. Or, like, it, it comes up every time in world cup qualifying. And this is a game that, um, Honduras has already been eliminated. So they really don't have anything to play for. As I I think you wrote, um, central American teams have struggled in the third game of these three game cycles. If there's going to be any game that's five nil in this, um, tournament, this would, would be the one. And yet, um, they've scheduled this game for, uh, a, a place and a field that would seem to equalize, uh, a, a talent advantage. And you've also said, Grant, that U.S. soccer is sick of you talking about this. Like, do they feel like, <laughs> like you should be like cheerleading the team and like being a, like, rah, rah, great, great idea for, for playing here? Like, why are, why are they not, uh, you know, up for tough criticism of their stupid decisions.
4: <laughs> I mean, for me, that's what it comes down to: is this was a choice made by U.S. soccer, which could have staged this game in Florida or Texas or wherever. We where can just continue naming you know,
1: warm weather places: Arizona,
4: <laughs> where it's where, where, where it's warm weather conditions, where the U.S.'s clear talent advantage would have the best opportunity to express itself. So when you're playing in potentially hazardous winter weather, obviously that advantage is not going to be as great, and you create the possibility of weird things happening. And you talked about all of the circumstances around Honduras being eliminated. They haven't won a game in qualifying. This should be a slam dunk for the U.S. I kind of felt the same way before the game in Trinidad in Cuba, in 2017, when the US was playing an eliminated Trinidad team who was playing their B and C team and beat the US when all the US needed was a tie to go to the World Cup. So, I mean, crazy stuff happens in international soccer, and the storyline can change very, very quickly after just one or two games. You know, I, I think back to Jurgen Klinsman lost the first two games of qualifying in the last World Cup cycle and went in one week from totally secure in his job to being fired. And so I think Greg Berhalter, if the U.S. were to lose this game against Honduras, his job would be in jeopardy.
2: If the U.S. were to lose this game against Honduras, the U.S. is in danger of not qualifying (laughs) for the World Cup. Let's be clear. The schedule is not in the Americans' favor. Honduras in literally zero-degree weather wind chill of what forecast for like negative 11 on Wednesday night in St. Paul. And then the last three games of the cycle are against the teams that they're competing with four spots at Mexico, Panama at home, at Costa Rica. There are no guaranteed points in those three games.
4: No. And so you don't want to leave this until the final window where the U S would be needing points at Mexico or at Costa Rica, two places where the U.S. hasn't gotten many points over the years, even when they were playing better than they are now. So there is, I guess, technically some margin for error as of right now in the sense that the U.S. is one point above fourth-place Panama, and the fourth-place team will have to go to an intercontinental one-game playoff against likely New Zealand in June in Qatar. If you're the U.S., you don't want to be in that fourth position. If you can win your two remaining home games against Honduras on Wednesday and at home against Panama in March, the U.S. should be okay to finish in the top three and go to Qatar, but there's really, really not much margin for error here.
1: Can we just... Lay out the nightmare scenario here just for fun. So let's say in this mm-hmm. on, on Wednesday, Panama, Panama beats Mexico and Costa Rica beats Jamaica and the US loses to Honduras. You're going into the final and Canada, they're basically gone at this point. Like that, that they've qualified. Um, you're going into the, to the final three games with uh, Panama 20, USA 18, Mexico 18, Costa Rica 16. U.S. has to play at Costa Rica, so could theoretically get passed by them. Fifth place.
4: The nightmare scenario is Costa Rica getting back into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and And the U.S. at this point controls its own destiny. So you win at home, you should be okay. But... Stranger things have happened. We've seen it the last cycle. So many things had to come together for the U.S. not to qualify, and they all did. So you would think that was like a a once-in-a-millennium-type situation, but maybe it's not.
2: Maybe it's a (laughs) a twice-in-a-millennium-type situation, which is what it would be. Grant Wall, he creates podcasts and great stories at Football with Grant Wall. Subscribe at grantwall.com. Thanks again for coming on the show, Grant. Great to have you as always. Thanks for having me. And now it is time for After Balls. On Saturday at the Milrose Games, the track meet in New York... A 38-year-old middle-distance runner from New Zealand who lives in Ann Arbor named Nick Willis extended a crazy record to a round number. Willis is a five-time Olympian, two-time medalist, and in New York, he ran a mile in under four minutes for the 20th year in a row. It was his 63rd sub-four mile. He just sneaked in this time with a time of 3 minutes, 59.71 seconds. Scott Cacciolo wrote a nice feature about Willis in the New York Times. He reported that Willis stuck to the back of his 18-year-old training partner, Hobbs Kessler, before they charged through the finish line. It was his second crack at the mark this month. He tried to do it just after midnight on New Year's Day on the same track, but finished in 4 minutes and 0.22 seconds. We'll post links on the site to Scott's story and to a short documentary about Willis and his attempt for number 20 called The Midnight Mile. Willis finished nine seconds behind the winner of the race, but having a sub four is still that carrot to chase a worthy goal, he said. I'm very proud of it. He would not
1: say whether he's going for number 21. I love this story, Josh. You uh, You do. I love that you love it. And I love it too, a little bit. Yeah, it's um, amazing. So, our Nick Willis this week is the dramatic conclusion of our three part series on that most dramatic of subjects, Stefan, the goofy sports idea.
2: All right. It is our hang up and listen honor to, to be joined now by the winner of the goofy sports innovation poll. He's Steve Jacobs, a software development manager who lives in St. Louis. Steve, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, guys. It's great to be here.
2: Thank you so much for coming on. All right. I'm going to go back So, for our listeners and remind everybody what we did. So we, had, we solicited your ideas for Goofy Sports Innovations, uh, and then we had a little Twitter poll last week. The four finalists were baseball for every three strikeouts you make in a game, you lose an out. In basketball, a cap on the number of three-point shots you can take in a game. Again, baseball, the scramble, whereby a runner on base can score after a third out as long as he crosses home plate before all of the defensive players clear the foul line on their dugout side. And finally, multi-puck overtime, where an extra puck is shot onto the ice after each minute of overtime in hockey. Uh, The results were losing out 6%, cap on threes 13%, the scramble 31%, multi-puck overtime, an even 50% of the more than 200 votes. Steve, it was a landslide. Um, I was kind of surprised. I thought the scramble was going to give you a closer closer race there.
5: I I think it's the simplicity. I mean, multi-puck just says it all. Um, and it, it speaks to the excitement of hockey already and just adds a multiplier.
1: So, how did you come up with multi puck over time? Is this a longstanding idea?
5: You know, I've been scratching my head all week trying to re- think of that. Um, I think it's probably back when, as kids, we used to play uh, that bubble hockey, like foosball. And we just, when things got boring, we just start a- adding extra pucks. And uh, like you said last week, Josh, um, you know, it is pinball, right? Pinball with multi ball. And multipliers, and and for some reason that's just stuck in my mind. And back in the back in the twenty teens, when NHL was working on some ideas for overtime, this one just really came to me. Um, I just never had a, a, a platform to share it and push it forward <laughs> until now. So, grateful to have. That. I
2: like my innovation, my idea to make it like bubble hockey, where there is something hovering above center ice, and the puck drops out.
5: Yeah. I li- um. <laughs> One thing that was really um, uh, amusing to me, Josh, last week when you started the idea with, well, puck, uh, you know, fans would throw a puck out. <laughs> For a second in my brain, I just thought, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like the rest of this is normal. But yeah, it needs to go on. The, it needs to be on the center line just like that, dropped out or shot out from one of the sides. Yeah. Give both teams an, an, uh, and maybe some randomization, right? Sometimes it comes from one side. Um, my uh-huh. wife said well why wouldn't a drone drop it or something and I'm thinking do you really want the players looking up all the time that seems dangerous uh so you know it's just implementation details really at this point
2: it really it's all in the, it's all in the details another idea I think would be to make it sort of like rollerball do you remember the movie where the ball goes spinning <laughs> around a track and then shoots out huh
5: that kind of requires some some changes uh but yeah I, c- I can see how that might might be an interesting
1: aspect all right so Steve, with any great idea, you're going to have people that don't understand its greatness. So let me embody the role of somebody who's a multi-puck critic, because you're going to be facing a lot of of attacks and criticism from the purists who don't want to change mm-hmm. the, the game. They're going to say, this is like another gimmick, like the glowing puck. Hockey is a, a ancient and storied game that needs to be treated with respect. Why are you trying to muck it up with these ridiculous ideas and shooting pucks out of drones? How do you uh respond to those fierce attacks? Uh I, I say look at the look at the votes,
5: fifty percent. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, is this the point where I have to like pretend I'm serious? Cause, uh, I mean, obviously it's a ridiculous idea, but, um, I, I still think it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting change on the current three on three overtime. I mean, three on three was, was seemed like a really good idea when they implemented it and, uh, you know, a lot of open ice rarity that you get to see it in, in real games, Um, So that was unique enough. But I think most hockey fans agree that it's gotten a little dull. It's all about puck control because nobody wants to make a mistake. Um, So uh, a team will skate in looking for an opportunity. If they don't see it, they skate right back out again. So it's a lot of just meaningless retreating, whereas multi-puck is a free for all. Uh, Obviously, it would be just insane from the beginning. Yeah, it would change the game, but I think for the better. And it's overtime anyway. I mean, each team gets a point. Uh, this is just fun time for the fans.
1: I think you are serious. I think you are serious, Steve. And I think you're don't <laughs> yeah. be afraid. Don't be afraid to to own it. There's a little bit Got of it. like, you know, I am serious, except if you're not serious, then maybe I'm not serious. Well, we're serious. Uh, so you need to be serious. OK.
5: OK. I'm driving it then. <laughs> um, one idea that I had since we talked was why does it have to it could start right at the at the zero zeros, right? Right, right when the regulation is over, boom, the extra puck comes out. So I, you know, I, I was thinking though we'd have to be a face-off, and then after 60 seconds, no, 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 zero, zeros, boom, the puck comes out, the second one, then it later, it's, third one comes out. Um, right.
2: So why, why bother with uh, another intermission? We got enough intermissions, and they're too long in hockey,
5: right? Exactly. Exactly. The excitement starts right at the end. Teams would strategize; they'd get fresh players out right before zero, zero, and then then the free for all begins.
1: What do we think the record would be? Let's say you play this for a season maybe 10 seasons like once we get a a sample size up do we think that as soon as the second puck gets out uh on the ice then a team would just score like pretty close to instantly do you think we would get to three four five like what what would be the the kind of world record most pucks on on an ice on the ice
5: wow well You know, I'd have to see some testing in the minor (laughs) leagues first and kind of get a feel for what uh, uh, what to expect. Because obviously, teams would have to adjust to this. Um, But uh, yeah, I think I think it's another. It's the start of a new record book. Three pucks, four pucks.
2: Um, Let's just see how it goes. I'm looking forward to the game where, and this is something that you're going to have to um, account for in the rules where pucks cross the line into both nets at exactly the same time. we got a yeah. whole VAR situation brewing. Yeah,
5: I know. That would definitely have to stop play and you'd have to, to, to review it. But, you know, we've got those rules already for, for one puck. It's really hard to, to make, those, make those determinations. And there's already, you know, if, if both pucks in that rare occasion where they both cross at the same time, Play goes on, right? You drop, drop some more pucks, and let's get it
1: started again. Yo, know, my last question is: What happens if one of the pucks, but not both, goes out of play? Like a, a player just hits it into the stands? Do you immediately drop another puck in, or do you continue playing with one?
5: You know, that's where I go back to pinball. Uh, a ball goes down the center; you just keep going. It's it's gone. You know, uh, a goalie catches one; it's out of play. Next puck comes in 60, 60 seconds. I don't see uh, I don't see the problem with that at all. And Josh, I you mentioned it. last week that you know about goalies, or maybe it was Stefan mentioned goalies. My daughter had the idea of well, it's just like it's multi, um, so you get a bonus, just like in pinball, two x the 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 goalies get twice the pay, three x <laughs> three times the pay. Uh, so they would be looking forward to it. I think
2: Steve Jacobs, he's the genius behind multi puck overtime and thank you so much Steve for not only the idea but for for being a long time hang up and listen listener. We really appreciate it and uh, it was fun to have you come on and uh, share your your brilliance. I hope that the people at NHL headquarters in New York are listening and if not I think we should make them aware.
5: And, yeah, it's been a pleasure and hey, I'm available NHL just uh, call me up. Get me on Twitter. <laughs>
1: That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com hangup, and you can email us at hangup@slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis and Louisa Thomas, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening.